who's excited to dive into the Ten Commandments? Oh, good. A few people. Actually, more than a few people. Majority of the church is excited. And for those that didn't raise your hand, I promise you, this is going to be way more exciting than it sounds. Now, you might be thinking, we're just diving into some Old Testament law, and we're going to spend 10 weeks on this. But I promise you, every single week is going to be so significant. And so I want you guys to lean into this. And I encourage you to take notes. If you have the Elam app, you can go on there and you can download the notes. That's going to have all the scriptures where you can type things in. Or if you're old school with a notebook and pen, which is my preferred method, you can pull that out. But I want you you guys to go on this journey with us. So you're going to get as much out of it as you lean into it, okay? And so if you lean into these messages, you're actually going to hear so much from God, and I'm excited to see what revelations are going to come out of this. But before we jump into it, I just want to do a little quick survey of the room. Can you guys do a survey with me? In fact, this is going to be a, an anonymous survey, so you guys got to close your eyes. I'm the only one that's going to see your answers. Everybody close your eyes. Don't you try to cheat in my survey, okay? Close your eyes. I want you to raise your hand if you believe you are a good person, meaning you believe you have some good morals. Raise your hand if you think you're a good person. Okay, majority of the church, I'd say 95% of the church has their hands lifted. Put your hands down. Okay, raise your hand. Keep your eyes closed. Raise your hand if you believe you are more moral than the average person. Now think of the entire world, everybody in the entire world, are you more moral than the average person? Raise your hand. Okay, all right, good, you can put your hands down. Um, over half of the room believes that they are more moral than the average, you can open your eyes now, sorry. You can open your eyes, you can look at me again. But over half of the room believes that they're more moral than the average, and at least 95% of the room believes that they are a good person. Now here's why I asked you that, is because researchers at the University of London concluded that a substantial majority of individuals believe themselves to be morally superior to the average person. Now I bet there was a lot of you that wanted to raise your hand, but you were sitting in church and you're like, no, I'm not going to say that, I'm more moral, but you were thinking you were. But then we think about, well, surely there's some people that we would all agree would be less moral than others, and surely they would have a better self-assessment of themselves, right? Like, let's think about murderers and thieves and the like, people who are in prison for committing crimes against humanity. A similar survey was done among them, a similar study, and guess what? Prisoners find themselves to be more moral than everyone else. They find themselves to be kinder than the average person. They find themselves to be more generous than the average person. In fact, um, the professor who conducted this study on prisoners wrote, the results showcase how potent the self-enhancement motive is. It's very important for people to consider themselves good, valued, and esteemed, no matter what the objective circumstances might be. So if almost everyone believes they are more moral than the average person, including people in prison for committing crimes against humanity, then clearly many of us are wrong, right? Like, we can't all be more moral than the average. Many of us, with our self-assessment, is wrong. But also, if we were actually to be as good as we believe we are, then society probably wouldn't look the way it does. Right? Right? In fact, if humanity agreed upon, upheld, and honored a moral code, then civilizations would probably be thriving right now. 
creativity and industries and communities would be flourishing if we actually all honored this moral code. But what could that moral code be? Well, you probably already figured it out. It's called the Ten Commandments. In fact, God gave Moses and the Israelites these Ten Commandments after they had been freed from slavery in Egypt. Almost three million people had been rescued from oppression under Pharaoh. And now they have this, this new community and they need new authority and new, a new framework to operate under. And so God gives them a framework in which to live by, a framework to build their community on. And that is what we have as the Ten Commandments. And I would say that civilizations that honor these Ten Commandments have actually prospered in comparison to those that have shunned them. History shows us that. And some might say, well, didn't Jesus... Didn't Jesus come in the New Testament to abolish the Old Testament law? Didn't he come to establish a new covenant with his people? Well, no, he didn't come to abolish it. He came to fulfill it because we simply couldn't in our own sinful nature. And he established a new covenant with God's people, but the moral laws still apply today. Moral laws are these 10 commandments, whereas majority of the other 613 Old Testament laws, don't worry, we're not going over all 613 of them, Majority of them are judicial, ceremonial, were specific to the Old Testament culture and context of that day, but the 10, those 10 still apply to us today. Those 10 are based on morality because moral law is a reflection of God's character. It actually shows us what he's like and it shows us his heart for people. And in fact, it shows us what we can be like because we're made in the image of God. And so this shows us that we all actually have this innate morality wired within our design. However, because of the fall, we also all have a sinful, selfish nature that often chooses us to prioritize self over others. And that leads us to crossing some moral boundaries. See, our selfishness has led to our current culture, which prioritizes what? Preferences, feelings, and subjective truth, all of which are based on self. But the purpose of moral law is actually to love God and love people. That's the whole purpose of moral law, is to love God and to love others. These Ten Commandments are actually going to help us become less selfish, less inward focused, and actually become more outward focused. The Ten will help us to become more loving people. And a more loving people with an agreed-upon morality will produce a much healthier society, right? Do we agree? So let's talk about the 10. And over the coming weeks, we're going to start with number 10 today, and we're going to work our way up to number 1. But we're focusing on number 10. And before we jump into it, can we pray? God, I thank you so much that many, many generations ago, you gave Moses and the Israelites these 10 commandments. And God, as we dive into them today, God, I pray that you would enlighten our hearts and our minds to hear what it is that you want to say to us through this moral law. I pray that as we go on this journey that you would reveal things in us that aren't fully submitted to this moral law and you would help us to become more moral people, people that are becoming more and more like Jesus every single day. God, would you take us on this beautiful journey and shape us into becoming more like you? And we pray for that in your almighty name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to jump into the book of Exodus, chapter 20. Did anybody bring their Bibles today, their physical Bibles? Come on, y'all. I gave you that challenge. Yes, thank you, John. Bring your physical Bibles next week if you got one. Uh, but jump into that with your Bible app, wherever you are, or read on the screen. You can find all of these commandments in the book of Exodus, chapter 20. 
You can read them right here on our tablets, which are not the same size that Moses would have carried down the mountain because that would have been a really heavy piece of stone. And I don't think he was that muscular, but maybe he was. No, I'm just kidding. They were much smaller. But they're right there. We're going to jump straight to number 10, which is verse 17. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. God is saying when you look at your neighbor, don't covet his house, his spouse, his animals, his servants, anything he owns. Basically, if it's his, it ain't yours to take. That's what God is trying to say. What does it mean to covet? Well, the original Hebrew word was chamad. And that means to lust or strongly desire to the point of seeking to take away and own something that belongs to somebody else. See, it's important to clarify here what covet actually means because it's not the same thing as admiration. Let me, t- let me show you what I mean. See, I could look at somebody's house that I think is beautiful and I could say, wow, this house is stunning. I hope to own a house like this one day. See, that could be admiration. That could be the motivation and inspiration I need to work hard in order to get the house of my dream so that I could own a house like that one day. But it's different when you look at something somebody else possesses and you believe you should have it and not them. You believe you're more deserving of that thing, and so you desire to take it from them, be it their property, the person they're dating, the job title they hold, the fancy office, The influence they have online, the car they drive, the uniform, the house, whatever it may be, you think you deserve it and not them. Our culture is innately selfish with pop lyrics that we sing in the car like, I see it, I like it, I want it, I got it. You know what that is? (laughs) Songs like that are actually breeding a mindset of coveting. Songs like that are actually toxic to the morality of nature. In fact, I'm going to take it a step further, and I'm going to just comment on part of Kiwi culture that I don't like. I love Kiwi culture. I love it. But here's the part that I don't like. Maybe you'll agree with me. See, we take it a step further in New Zealand. See, in this country, if somebody else has something that someone else desires but they can't obtain themselves, instead of admiring and celebrating that person's achievement, the tall poppy syndrome cuts them down. It's an attitude that says, I see it, I like it, I can't have it, so you shouldn't either. That's what happens in New Zealand. In fact, just this week, as I was writing this message, I saw this play out online. A Kiwi food blogger, she posted up some photos of her upcoming kitchen renovation. And within minutes, within minutes, she got some incredibly rude messages. Now let's remember, she is a food blogger. So it operates out of her kitchen. So getting a kitchen renovation makes complete sense to her business. But she received messages within minutes of posting up these photos saying, wow, you're so ungrateful. Here I am sleeping in the same room as my kids and my other kids have mold in their bedroom, but you need a kitchen renovation? You're so ungrateful. People legit sent her these messages within minutes of her posting up the photos of her new kitchen. Tall poppy syndrome, y'all. I personally see this as a syndrome that comes out of covetousness. It's an attitude that says, well, if I can't have a new kitchen, then you shouldn't either. Even if you worked your butt off to pay for that kitchen with your food blogging business, because my kids have moldy bedrooms, I deserve the kitchen and you don't. You're so ungrateful. That's what tall poppy syndrome says. This woman who has getting the new kitchen was not ungrateful. She was very grateful for her new kitchen. But the woman who messaged her was just straight up rude and coveting something that somebody else had. She was envious of someone else's success. Now, why is it important? 
that we talk about coveting first. Why do we talk about number 10 first? Why are we going backwards and not starting at number one? Well, if you look at these 10 commandments, maybe you've never heard them before. Let's just take a look at a, a couple of them. Keep the Sabbath day holy. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. If we look at all of these other commandments, all of these other commandments are legislating against someone's behavior, but coveting is legislating against the thought. Every other commandment is about behavior, but number 10, it's about the thought that comes before the behavior. See, this one is about the evil thought that could lead to some evil actions. So let's talk about that one first. To covet is an evil thought that can lead to an evil action. And let me just show you what I mean by looking at some biblical examples in history that have played out. See, when God was instructing his people, the Israelites, on how he was going to drive out the nations before them and help them possess the land that they can now live in, he was going to lead them to victory. He said this to them in Deuteronomy 7.25. The images of their gods you are to burn in the fire. Do not covet the silver and gold on them. Don't take it for yourselves, or you will be ensnared by it, for it is detestable to the Lord your God. He knew that the Israelites were going to be tempted by the silver and gold on the idols when they went into the land to possess it for themselves. And he knew that they might try to rationalize their behavior by saying, God, we're not taking the idol. It's just the gold and silver on the idol. Like, it's so valuable. We can't just burn it. He knew the Israelites were going to think in that thought pattern. He said, don't y'all covet the silver and gold on the idols that you find within the land because it could ensnare you. He knew if, he allowed, if they allowed themselves to covet the silver and gold, they would then steal the idol, which would then lead them to setting up the idol in their home, which would lead them to worshiping false gods. And it, God says, you shall make no idols. You shall have no other gods before me. He knew that if they coveted, it could lead them to breaking other commandments. Let's look at King Ahab in 1 Kings 21. He was one of the most wicked kings of Israel. And he decided that he wanted a vineyard that was close to his palace, and he wanted to turn it into a vegetable garden. But it belonged to a man named Naboth. And so he goes to Naboth, and he tries to convince Naboth to trade it for a different vineyard so he can have his vegetable garden, or tries to convince Naboth to sell it to him, and Naboth refuses. He had every right to refuse. It was his land. Naboth said, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. And so King Ahab, he goes home angry and sulking because he couldn't get what he wanted. He didn't get his vegetable garden that day. And his wife Jezebel, even more wicked arguably, she decides, you know what, I'm going to fix this. But she fixes it in such an evil way. She actually goes to break commandment number nine. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. She decides to pay two scoundrels, as the Bible calls them. I love it. The Bible calls them out. Two scoundrels to bear false witness. That means they made up lies about Naboth that condemned him to the point where he was stoned to death. Commandment number six, you shall not murder. To the point where then she broke commandment number eight, you shall not steal. I'm trying to count. We didn't put numbers up there. Got to count backwards up. But all of it started with the thought of coveting someone else's property that led to these other evil actions that followed. Still don't believe me that evil thought could lead to evil actions? Maybe you're thinking, well, Darcy, those were evil people in your story. What about somebody good? How about King David? King David was actually described as a man after God's own heart. He was one of the greatest kings in all of history. But even some of the greatest leaders have weak moments where their sinful, selfish nature creeps in and they make some really horrible decisions. Because there was this moment in 2 Samuel 11 where King David was walking around his rooftop one night and he spots another woman 
on another rooftop who was bathing. And he decides he wants to find out about this beautiful woman. Soon finds out this is the wife, the wife of Uriah, somebody in his army. That doesn't stop him, though. He invites Bathsheba over to his house. He sleeps with her, and he gets her pregnant. He had this thought of coveting that led to him committing adultery. But then he takes it a step further because one action can lead to another evil action. He takes it a step further, finds out that she's pregnant, and he's like, well, I've now got to kill her husband so that he doesn't find out. He puts Uriah on the front line of the next battle and instructs his commander to let Uriah die. That's straight-up murder. He put him in a position where he would intentionally die, all because he never wanted him to find out that his wife was pregnant with the king's son. Covetousness is a dangerous drug that is never satisfied. Once you've got what you thought you needed, there is always something or someone else that you just have to have. It's like a horrible domino effect that humanity loves to play. If people allow themselves to covet something that is not theirs to take, and they let that first domino fall, then other dominoes will likely fall after it. It's why wars take place. It's why human trafficking exists. It's why we have horrible reality shows that make a mockery of the marriage covenant. It's why shady business deals take place where people are tricked out of what they own. I would argue that none of this would actually take place if we didn't covet what was not ours to take. If humanity actually learned how to take captive that thought of strong desire and lust to take something away that was not theirs to take, then the dominoes of evil actions likely would not fall. Now you might be thinking, but Darcy, why is it a sin to strongly desire someone or something if I'm not actually going to act on that desire? Well, Jesus came and he challenged this very notion. If we go to the New Testament, the book of Matthew chapter 5, in verse 21 and 22, he said, You've heard it said to people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whew, just angry? Verse 27 and 28, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is essentially saying, if we allow the evil thought to take root in our heart, then it's as if we've already committed the evil action. If we don't deal with the root, we will inevitably see the fruit, right? If we don't deal with the root, we will inevitably see the fruit. 2 Corinthians 10.5, it's coming up on the screen. It tells us to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. See, too often, we try to simply suppress our evil thoughts instead of taking them captive. Let me show you what I mean. Let's picture this red ball as an evil thought of coveting something that we desire to take from somebody else. This is what most people do. If this is their heart and their mind, they try to just suppress the evil thought. They try to just push it down, hoping that it will go away, trying to push it out of their memory, trying to push it out, but it keeps bouncing back up. It keeps resurfacing, coming back up to the surface. So then they decide that we're just going to ignore it. But it's still there. We still haven't dealt with it. See, actually to take captive a thought, you actually have to acknowledge it and take that very thought to God and say, God, 
I need help with this thought. It keeps popping up in my heart and mind. I don't want it there. I want a pure heart, God. Could you help me with this? And sometimes if this thought keeps popping up, you actually need to take it to a trusted person, like a mentor or a counselor that can help you process this thought so you can fully deal with the root and not see the fruit. Because if you just keep taking the fruit away, the root is still there. You've got to deal with the root if you don't want to see the fruit. And if you think about it, this commandment, you shall not covet, is actually leading us to develop a purity of the heart. A purity of the heart and mind. Because a pure and a healthy heart isn't focused on selfish gain from sinful thoughts. Rather, a healthy heart is outward focused. And it's always asking, how can I better love God and better love people? And one of the greatest ways that we can combat these thoughts of covetousness is with contentment. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 and 7, it says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of it. That's a good reminder to all of us. We brought nothing into this world, and we can't take anything out of it. When we discover how to be content with what we do have, then we're far less likely to entertain these thoughts of coveting what we don't have. So here's my challenge for all of us this week, is to recognize these thoughts when they creep up in your heart and mind. To not just let it sit there, to not try to push it down or to ignore it, but to actually take captive that very thought of an evil thought and replace it with the truth. Now, how do we do that? By focusing on some healthy habits. Because healthy habits will produce healthier actions, right? Healthier behavior. And healthier behavior produces healthier character, which is going to lead to a more moral and good, loving society. So there's three habits I want us to focus on this morning and this coming week. And the first is gratitude. Gratitude is actually acknowledging what I do have. It's simply acknowledging what I do have. To acknowledge what we do have is a powerful perspective that shifts our focus away from what we don't have and acknowledges everything that God has already blessed us with. Practicing gratitude is this powerful tool that helps you live in the present moment instead of desiring a future circumstance. Think about it. If the Israelites would have practiced gratitude in that moment and acknowledged all of the land that God was giving to them, all of the land that they were victorious from, it would have taken their focus off of the idols within the land. If King Ahab would have practiced gratitude and acknowledged the incredible palace he already lived in and all the land he had that he could have turned into a vegetable garden, it would have taken his focus off of the vineyard that Naboth did not want to sell to him. If King David would have practiced gratitude and acknowledged the kingdom that God had given him and all the single women in the kingdom, it would have taken his focus off the woman who was not available, right? What about my girl Eve? If Eve would have just practiced some gratitude and acknowledged all of the trees that she could have eaten from in the Garden of Eden, it would have taken her focus off that piece of fruit that said, God, don't eat that one. See, if we can just acknowledge what we do have in front of us, it actually takes our focus off of the things that we don't have. When you have thoughts of coveting creep up in your mind and heart, take it captive and start declaring gratitude over everything you actually do have. And then that leads to stewardship. Stewardship is then focusing on what I have. Gratitude is acknowledging it. Stewardship is focusing on what I have. Because when you're aware of and grateful for what you have, you can become a better steward of it. God tells us that those who are faithful with little will be trusted with much, right? 
So if we go back to that story about the food blogger that I told you about, this Kiwi food blogger with the kitchen renovation coming up, she's been faithful with a little. She started with a small kitchen and a small following online, and she's grown that to over 90,000 followers now on Instagram. She has worked her butt off to get that new kitchen. She's grateful, but she was also a good steward of what she had. She grew that. But what about the woman who criticized her? That woman needs to be less focused on pulling, else somebody, pulling somebody else down that has more than her and be more focused on stewarding her own home and family. Like, maybe you don't want to hear this, but that woman was wasting time commenting and sending ugly messages to somebody else who had more than her when really she should have been focused on going to deal with the mold in the bedrooms that she was talking about. She was too focused on pulling out somebody down. Look, you should never try to pull somebody else down simply because you cannot figure out how to get up. You should never pull somebody else down because you can't figure out how to get up. You can be a good steward by focusing on what you have and celebrating others' successes at the same time. Let other people's successes be admiration or inspiration, motivation for you to steward your own resources well. Keys can come join me now. Because that leads to my third habit, which is generosity. Generosity is giving from the overflow of what I have. So you know that you've developed a healthy heart of contentment when you're able to develop a spirit of generosity. What do I mean by that? Well, when you're focused on what other people have, then you're always focused on what you lack. And you're thinking that you have to take it from other people in order to feel content. But if you acknowledge what you have and you become a good steward of it, we know that those who are faithful with a little can be trusted with more, right? See, God will multiply what you have if you become a good steward of it. And eventually, he'll multiply it so much that all of a sudden, you have this overflow. And you can give from that overflow that you have because you know you have absolutely enough. You know that what you give from, God can help produce more. There's always more where that came from. Because if we go back to the source, who is God, of our, the source of our contentment, then we can recognize that actually there's no room for this thought to even take place in there because this is a healthy heart. That healthy heart is full and is content and is acknowledging, man, God has already given me so much. I don't need to take from other people. I just need to go back to the source and say, God, could you be my source of contentment today? Could you help me become more content with this house that I'm in? Help me to find contentment with this marriage. Help me to find contentment with this job. Help me to find contentment with my kids. Help me to find contentment with my school. Help me to find contentment with where I am right now. Because if you go to the source, then you'll realize that you're never lacking. And God actually has enough to bless all y'all. He's not going to run out. He's got enough for all of us. Gratitude, stewardship, and generosity they won't develop within you overnight. Like any good habits, it's going to take some time to cultivate them and develop this healthy heart of contentment. And I love the way this writer put it, Rebecca DeYoung. In fact, I put it up on the screen so you can read along with me. She said, by way of an analogy, think of a winter sledding party in which a group of people head out to smooth a path through the freshly fallen snow. The first sled goes down smooth, slowly, carving out a rut. Other sleds follow over and over down the same path, smoothing and packing down the snow. And after many trips, a well-worn groove develops, a path out of which it is hard to steer. The groove enables sleds to stay aligned and on course, gliding rapidly, smoothly, and easily on their way. Character traits are like that. The first run down, which required some effort, 
and tough going gradually becomes a smooth track that one glides down without any further intentional steering. Of course, a rider can always stick out a boot and throw the sled off course, usually damaging the track as well. So too, we can act out of character even after we've been in the groove for some time. In general, however, habits incline us swiftly, smoothly, and reliably towards certain types of behavior. Habits like gratitude, stewardship, and generosity will incline us swiftly, smoothly, and reliably towards upholding the other nine commandments. Developing a healthy thought life will lead to us to producing healthier actions. Now, can we still act out of character even after we've been in the groove for some time? Of course. But what matters in that moment is that we get back on track and we keep moving forward. We must recognize when a negative thought tries to re-enter our mind, take it captive, and focus on developing a healthy, pure thought life and a healthy, pure heart. When we're feeling empty or lacking, we go to the source of our contentment, right? And we go to the source who is God, who always has more than enough for us. We don't need to take away from other people. We just need to go straight to God. So church, can we commit to dealing with the sinful roots before we see the sinful fruit? Let's commit to the sin, dealing with that root before we see the fruit. Let's become individuals who are not ruled by thoughts of coveting what we don't have, but rather let's be people who are daily practicing gratitude, good stewardship, and generosity. And that's where true contentment will be found. And then I promise you, if you can master this one, the other nine commandments will be so much easier to follow. This one helps us carve out that path in the snow so that we can stay on that track and we can glide swiftly, smoothly, and reliably towards upholding and living a more moral life. So let's work on the thought life and that will lead to some healthier actions. Church, let me pray for you.